Welcome to this podcast on the BMJ, created in collaboration with the World Health Organization and UN University. This podcast is a part of the collection on women's health and gender inequalities. It celebrates 25 years since the Beijing Declaration on Women's Rights. I'm Vismita Gupta-Smith. In these podcasts, we'll be hosting conversations between women earlier and some who are more advanced in their careers. Doctors, researchers, legislators, and campaigners, all working towards building a future in which women can thrive. As well as these in-depth discussions, we'll hear from experts who have written for the collection to give you insights into how they think the world should change, as well as give you a flavor of the broader conversations around women's health and gender inequalities. In this second podcast, I had the pleasure of talking to Lulith Jonas Mangesha and Kara Tenenbaum. Lulith is right at the beginning of her medical career. She's a medical student in Ethiopia, but has already become passionate about women's health. And Kara is the scientific director of the Institute of Gender and Health at the Canadian Institute of Health Research. Lulith and Kara discuss how women have been excluded from healthcare research, how there are gaps in our understanding of basic biology, as well as how different life experiences affect outcomes. So Lulit, talk to us about where about your passion for research and uh, education of health professionals. My passion mainly arises from my experience as a medical student in Ethiopia in a third world country where women are not empowered enough to decide for their own health and for their own bodies. So what I what I focus on and what I want to work on is to motivate women to be empowered enough to decide for their own health. And in my practice, I I see I've run into women that couldn't decide for their own health and that couldn't decide for a family planning method, for example, and also that couldn't decide on a treatment plan that they needed and that their physician had for them because they couldn't get a permission from their husbands. And that's what I'm passionate about to, that so that this woman would be empowered enough and they can make a, a decision for their own for their own health without having to get a permission from another man. So this this picture that you're painting about women who are not able to not making decisions about their bodies about uh, reproductive right issue issues and um, actually in all stages of their uh, life we we see that play out in many parts of the world um, I grew up in India um, while it wasn't so for me because I I came from a family where. Uh, this this was not the scenario for me. I could see this all around me that women often were not uh, making the decisions. Uh, they were being told either by the culture, or the society around them about how they should feel about their body, about their sexuality, about their rights and about all, many health issues. I want to come to you, um, Dr. Kara. Tell me about how uh, this was in, in where you grew up and how are you now prioritizing uh, women's uh, health and gender equality in your Well, life? I'm from Canada. So, Lupita, I, I've had a different experience than you and you've had with your patients. But like you, when I was a medical student, I really became excited about imagining a world where healthcare could be delivered by women for women. 
I had the privilege of taking care of my grandmother when I was young. And unfortunately, she was ill with a neurodegenerative condition, multiple sclerosis. And I just saw her fall through the cracks in the system. So I kept on asking, what does the science say? What is what does the medical system stand up to do for women that's different than men? And I think my life-changing experience with Mita, it was when I was a medical resident because I, I'm a physician and I was treating patients in the coronary care unit. And there were two beds. And in one bed, there was a man. And in the other bed, there was a woman. And they both were having a heart attack. And what happened was everyone got all excited about the man and they said, oh, you're having a heart attack. Let's race you to the cath lab and see if your arteries are blocked and then we'll take you for surgery and we'll fix your heart right away. And I was like, yep, yep, that sounds good. And I said, what are we going to do about Mrs. who's having a heart attack? Oh, Mrs. Yep. Well, go and prescribe some hormone replacement therapy for her. And I said to myself at the time, well, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we're treating men and women differently. Um, so we prescribed the hormone replacement therapy, and this is you know back in the 1990s. And I immediately ran to the library in those days and looked up like, why are we treating women and men differently? You know, look at all these trials and research that must have been done. I mean, we we are different, right? I mean, women are not small men, so it's good that we're treating them differently. But of course, there was no evidence. It was based on observational trial. Fast forward a few years to the Women's Health Initiative, and we found out that hormone replacement therapy is not good for women having heart attacks. And I said to myself, whoa, we really need to do something in science and research to make sure that all women can have evidence-based care. And yes, maybe they need to be treated differently in many circumstances, but let's make sure that we're basing it on science. So I think that's what got me passionate and excited to look at this. And, you know, I'd be happy to tell you a little bit later what I found out when I started doing research about why women were treated differently. So I want to learn more about what you just now said, uh, Cara. If you could backtrack from the from that point where a man and a woman uh, were being treated differently, uh, and backtrack to the medical school and the education that happened. What happened? What was happening there that was resulting in that outcome? So what I learned, I mean, what I didn't learn is is that uh, women and men have different physiologies. I mean, I learned that they had different chromosomes. Women have XX, XY. Transgender women are different if we want to be inclusive. Um, but it, after telling us in medical school that we were different at the genetic level, maybe at the sex hormone level. And in those days, of course, they said that estrogen was the female hormone and you know, testosterone was the male hormone. And of course, now we know that both, you know, all sexes and genders have estrogen and testosterone, so we can't label them. Um, they didn't really talk about sex differences or how the biology made women have different symptoms. So I didn't learn in medical school that women present with different symptoms of heart attack, maybe not that crushing chest pain, maybe more fatigue, more tiredness um, than men do because they were, they were essentially, I mean, if you look back at the medical textbooks, 
I think I read somewhere that about 80% of them are just based on the male body. Um, so they really did just treat women as being secondary to what we learned about men. And if you did studies on new medications, they would ask for 18-year-old male volunteers to do the early studies in and then just assume that whatever findings they found would work and the drug would work just as well without side effects in a, I don't know, a 75-year-old black woman. So I don't think that people were thinking about diversity. I think in the 20th century, it was very much reductionist, get rid of variability, don't put in any complicating factors. Women have got to be more complicated than men, so let's not study them, but of course, let's treat them with the research that we did. And I often tell my students now that I, I don't think it was ill-intended. You know, when you look back in North America at some of the tragedies we had, the thalidomide tragedy, it was a medication you know, for nausea and pregnancy, and it was given to women without really testing. And unfortunately, babies were born with malformations. That's when I think the men who were mostly the decision makers and the leaders in health science at that time said, let's keep women out of science. Let's not include women in clinical trials because we don't want to hurt their, our babies. And I, I think then we had to fight for our rights back because Pregnant women get sick and sick women get pregnant. So, of course, we need to do research to be able to empower women with the best choices for their health. So, you know, when I learned, no, nobody was really thinking about this. But today, we are not going to give them a choice but to think about this. I'm Dr. Lavanya Vijaya Singham. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at United Nations University International Institute for Global Health in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. So women have been systematically excluded or underrepresented in many clinical trials. Um, and this means that we are not accounting for key sex differences in disease pathology or the way that medicines interact with the female body, such as how and how fast is it, it is absorbed and moves through the body metabolized, eliminated, which ultimately leads to differences in safety and efficacy outcomes. And, you know, when, when I first got into this, this area of research, I thought, you know, th this has to be wrong. You know, we could not have, that can't be this gaping hole in how we understand, you know, the human body, let alone more than half of the population, right? Um, but as I read and, you know, discovered more, I feel like perhaps it was the way uh, medical education itself was set up for us um, um, that you know these justifications were, um, were were set in stone for many people and to challenge that was was kind of uh, um, out of the norm historically a protectionist stance dominated the justification to exclude women of childbearing potential uh, this prioritized the safety of unborn babies which is of course important Nevertheless, a presumably unintended consequence is the neglected consideration of what the lack of data could mean for pregnant and lactating women's underlying health needs. Additionally, a Caucasian male body was typically used in research for a host of reasons, including the assumption that it was easier to recruit men, and essentially findings from research on male bodies could be extended to the female body. 
the fact is there are broader genetic, molecular, physiological, biochemical differences, and these extend to how pharmaceuticals interact with the human body. So this excuses, as you put it, it cannot be accepted in this day and age. There's resistance and there's groups of stakeholders who are perhaps not convinced that overt sex and uh, gender attention is required as a standard requirement because bigger sample sizes will be needed in research and therefore more res resources need to be invested. But the thing is, consideration of sex and gender, that is considering the differences in women and men, transgender and intersex individuals, contributes to better science and can lead to more translation and innovation that benefit everyone, creating value for health systems, economies, societies, including in the pursuit of greater economic productivity and gender equality. I want to hear uh, from Lulit now as a medical student, what is your experience of how what we are learning now in medical school about men and women and health and how are do you see that prioritization happening in education? Um so um, from what I from the training I get, I don't I don't think I've gotten enough training about the differences between men and women and there, and, and how, you know, like even about women, women by themselves are so different and so diversified. Women um, can be from different parts of the country with different experiences and with different exposure, including their health and, you know, like their life, their lifestyles about um, their health. So I don't think we get enough trainings about how to address these differences and this um, uh, different bodies that we have. So uh, we, we could get some courses on women's health and like the about how the women's structures and but we, but we don't get enough courses about how one woman is different from the other woman but so I think it's that's something I, w I wish I got in medical school and that that's something I wish I will get that I hope I will get in the future before because I'm still learning you know and um, the other thing is um, in medical school we don't learn how um, women's um, women cells you know uh, for example I have this uh, the, Difficult experience with a woman, like I said, I'm very passionate about women's autonomy. So, so, so I'll be talking about that more often. So, uh, I had this um, patient who needed, who was going through a prolonged labor, and we needed to have a, an emergency cesarean section. But when we asked her if she wanted to, if when we asked her for for the consent and that we needed to do the surgery, she said she needed permission from her husband. So we had to go and look for her husband, and ask um ask him if he if he would allow his uh, wife to wait to get a uh, to to get a cesarean section. He was like, "Don't you have another option? Can you explore some other alternatives?" And he was very reluctant to let us uh, do the surgery. So uh, in the meantime, we we're trying to save the mom, his wife, and also the the child he was going to have and. It took us a lot of uh, uh, negotiation and a, a lot of uh, dealing with the husband to get the woman to the operation theater. So I think um, to have this uh, uh, this in the medical training and to like the ethical aspect and to to know what to expect regarding uh, this difficult situation would help with uh, the medical practice to promote women's health. Kara, uh, Lulit has been talking about the importance of understanding how a woman's sociological background impacts her health. 
How is this being researched at the moment? In research, we're very much moving to requiring that gender-related factors be considered in health research unless you have a justification for not. And by gender, I don't just mean gender identity, which is how someone self-identifies as a man, woman, non-binary, in between both transgender. Um, I mean, things like gender rules. So the, the occupational rules, the family caregiving rules that society ascribes to men and women based on the setting, culture, and, and lived experience, geography, and time. I'm talking about things like gender relations. What are the power dynamics at work? Things like institutionalized gender, where there are disadvantages to women embedded in regulations and laws. All those contribute to social determinants of health and not being able to uh, get the health outcomes that you need. We're very much starting to teach methods for intersectionality, because intersectionality is about those socioeconomic factors, whether it's um, lower income, whether it's living in an area with a higher neighborhood deprivation, whether uh, it's about housing. Uh, unfortunately, here in Canada, we have many Indigenous communities and many Indigenous women who don't even have access to uh, clean water. So how do you take an intersectional lens, accumulation of, um, I guess, uh, positions of, of, you know, marginality and not power and privilege in society and use that lens and use research methods to not only identify which groups of women have uh, the lowest health equity, if you will, but to design interventions at the systemic level, at the structural level. We don't need to fix the women. We need to fix the systems that put women in those positions so that everybody from no matter where you come from, all women at any stage of their life can have equal access to the best health outcomes along with any other man. Do you have any specific examples of research into that sociological effect on health outcomes? <laughs> well, Vizmita, I'm sure that you cannot relate to this from India or Ethiopia, Lolit, but you're making me think of a change in snow cleaning policies that they first did in Sweden and that we've been considering doing in Canada. So what happens here in the winter is that a lot of snow falls and we also get a lot of ice. And when you slip on the ice, you can fall and break your hip. And an analysis showed that many more women were falling and breaking their hips and going to the emergency department than men. So you say, hmm, so what does that have to do with gender? Are women, are, is their balance just not as good? Is this a sex-related factor? But the answer is no, it actually had to do with gendered patterns of work and caregiving. So cities typically use their big machines to clear the main roads that take the businessmen to work downtown. And they only get around to clearing the smaller streets and the sidewalks after. But of course, it's mostly women, um, generally because they don't have the same socioeconomic status, that have to walk to the bus stop on the smaller streets or that have to use uh, paths to take children to school. So walking on the small paths or having to walk all the way to the bus stop on sidewalks or streets that haven't been cleared put these women more at risk of falls and fractures because the ice hadn't been salted and the snow hadn't been cleared. So I remember a particular uh, story, uh, well, data, where they decided to reverse the pattern. 
And they would clear the sidewalks and the small paths to the schools and the hospitals, because many women were healthcare workers first, and then clear the big roads, taking the men in their fancy cars downtown. And of course, there was a bit of an uproar and a bit more traffic. But what happened was, is that they managed to reduce the falls and fractures that women were experiencing by more than half in the coming year. So to me, that's an example of looking at social determinants of health and how gender-related policies can improve the health of women. Hello, my name is Claudia Lopes. I'm a research fellow at United Nations University, the International Institute for Global Health in Malaysia. So during the COVID-19 pandemic, there was a considerable disruption of the uh, critical mental health services. A survey by the WHO uh, showed that 93% of countries show disruption in, in these services that include outpatient services uh, and prevention and promotion of mental health care. So during the COVID-19 pandemic, the digital mental health interventions, they were seen as a viable solution uh, to uh, remedy uh, some of the gaps and uh, some of the shortages. AI is inherent to these digital mental health applications. AI, I think now is present in any type of application that implies um, the analysis of, of data and uh, with the view of producing some outputs. So this can be used for, for example, diagnostic. If you think that AI will, uh, will work on data sets that are produced um, uh, by people who are using these uh, technologies, and if the access and use is biased, so the data sets will, will be biased. So we will have certain groups of the population that will be underrepresented in these data sets, in this training data. The thing is that if you don't consider gender bias, you're already biasing towards men because that's, that is the group that will have more access and will have more experience. And so not, not developing and not designing for particular groups you're already biasing towards the most dominant and popular and common groups. Yes, yeah, so when, when we think about these gender biases, we are not only making a bold comparison between men and women, we are talking about um, different types and different groups of men and different groups of women. So there are several uh, categories that we need to consider when we think about this intersection. And, and for example, what we haven't found is like, if we, we, we didn't see any apps for the mental, mental digital health for women or men living with disabilities. So there are also some gaps in terms of these groups. Uh, one of the solutions is to uh, collect data on sex and gender that are linked to this, uh, the use of the, these digital mental health uh, uh, technologies. And so there will be data sets that will be produced that will be more balanced in terms of these characteristics. Um, and it also means that if you think about algorithmic bias, is, is it also possible to use AI in a way that uh, this bias, to identify this bias and, and to correct this bias. So we shouldn't look at AI as a source of bias, is also a source, is also a solution to correct this bias. So maybe uh, there's no easy fix for the gaps in the excess, but at least if you are aware 
of the impact of these gaps in terms of the biases that we'll have in terms of the data sets, that will be already a first step to create more equitable technologies. And other solution is to um, involve more women in the technology development and uh, in the content creation and also the testing and piloting of these technologies. Uh, so it's important to have uh, software development uh, projects that are led or, or managed by women that is still uh, a big gap at the moment. So let's explore this uh, sort of then versus now a little more about 25 years ago when the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action on Women was signed. Lulit, you weren't even born at that time. And uh, I think uh, Kara and I were probably in our, uh, we, we were young professionals at that time, right? Um, so I want to... I want to explore what has happened since then. How much have we progressed since then? Um, uh, Kara, tell me about uh, prioritization of research on uh, women's uh, health and gender. What, are, what does the landscape look like right now? Tell, talk to us about the funding, the challenges. What does it look like where you are right now? Well, I'm happy to say that it is much improved you know, you were reminding me of where I was in my career, you know, at the time of the Beijing Declaration. And I had just finished a study about what women want. And I had a dream to start a medical center for women throughout their life course, because women's health needs change throughout the life course. And I went to the head of the hospital and I said, this is my dream. You're building a new hospital. We have a whole building for women across the life course to take care of their health. And the men kind of looked at me and said, well, Lilith, you'll like this story. Um, go to the head of obstetrics and gynecology. And if they agree, then maybe we could do it. Because, of course, women were only about their reproductive organs at the time. And at that time, obviously, a man would have the say about what happened. So I went to him and I said, um, so what do you think about this idea? Women across the life course, you know, starting from menarche all the way to menopause and beyond. And he looked at me and he said, well, women can really only have babies until the age of 50, maybe 60 with infertility treatment. So I don't really see why we have to treat them across the life course. The obstetrics and gynecology unit is fine. So that was, that was when we had the Beijing announcement. Now there's women's health centers popping up all over the place in Canada here. Uh, we even have a Life Force Women's Health Center popping up. I just heard approval for Toronto, but it took 25 years. And in research, we built on a policy uh, that Canada has. It's called the Sex and Gender-Based Analysis Policy. And it says that any money that the government invests in research needs to benefit not just men, but girls, women, uh, transgender folk, gender diverse people equally. And so we've put in place checkpoints along the research funding pipeline where all applicants who want to do research to improve the health of men, women, and gender diverse people have to write how they're accounting for what we call sex and gender. And we define sex as biological factors and we define gender as sociocultural factors. 
And that got better. We went from only 20% of people accounting for sex and gender and including, you know, females or women in their studies on health to right now we're almost at 80%. So that's great. But of course, there's many conditions that only affect women or that women are more common in women. So we require additional investment. And this year in the budget 2021, our government invested $20 million just for women's health research to make sure that women really get the attention that they need in research. So at least in Canada, I'm feeling like we're doing better than we did 25 years ago. And we're making sure that we have money specifically for women's health research, but also that when you do research on conditions that affect men and women, that you look to see if there's any differences or ways in which they should be treated differently. I want to get a view from Lulit as well of how you see the Beijing Declaration um, and how you view that and, and also your reality in your world right now. Where How do you see research on women's health and uh, gender equality? Okay, so like you said, Ms. Mita, I wasn't even born when the Beijing Declaration was uh, signed. But uh, from what I heard, uh, from, what, from what I know about the Declaration, I think it was very crucial. It was such a foundation for uh, gender equality and women's health, especially when it comes to um, diversified group of people and diversified group of uh, uh, people who are with different backgrounds. So um, 25 years ago, I uh, expect... Uh, I've heard from my seniors and my female professors in the, at the school that there were only like two or three medical students from a class of 60 to 100 students while back then, and it's, it's not even 25 years ago, but some 10 or 15 years ago, but nowadays we have like 50% of the students' population as male and female, so I think that's something we can count as an improvement since... Um, since 25 years ago, and also um, even if um, even if there were there are like 50 percent of uh, female students now, we don't have uh, many female professors. You can literally count the number of female professors at any field in Ethiopia with your finger. So there are so uh, it shows that there's still a lot of gap. And when it comes to the higher hierarchies and when it comes to the leadership positions and senior level physicians, we still have um, a few. Uh, representation from women so I think that's something we should still work on regardless of the difference um, the improvement we're experiencing now in the medical school community and uh, I have one uh, female um, uh, senior who is the first and also the only female cardiothoracic surgeon in Ethiopia and I, um, I once read her article about how every female in the hospital community um, wearing a white coat is considered a nurse whether she's a specialist or a subspecialist and how a Every man who is wearing a white coat is considered a doctor, whether he's just a porter with a, who's wearing a white coat or as, or, or whether he is a physician. So this tells us that women, um, men are not, um, the society is not considering, uh, women are still uh, capable of achieving their goals and becoming leaders in the hospital community. But, and sadly, that's also true. Uh, I, I still experience those uh, things in my school and I still um, see women are underestimating female physicians and I still uh, see some patients who refuse to get treatment because their physician is a female. So I think there's still some improvement, but there is a low, uh, way, um, a way to go and there's a lot of uh, room for 
assignments and we have to do a lot to change that as well. So Lulith, we were chatting yesterday and you were mentioning your uh, your interaction with a, a more senior a woman um, a professional, health professional. Uh, how do you how do you see the you know their evolution and where you are now um, in when it comes to women's health and uh, gender issues? Okay, so like I said, that teacher was telling us how everyone was discouraging her when she wanted to pursue a higher level of education after medical school, when she wanted to uh, to study surgery even, and because um, surgery is usually here in my experience, it's usually a male-dominated field, and people think you need to be uh, muscular to do some surgery, and um, and. Uh, and so that she was telling us how everyone was discouraging her and how everyone was telling her that after medical school, she had to get married and have children right away and that she's destined to do that. But now I think people accepting, accepting more and more that women are, are destined to be leaders and women are destined to be, um, uh, researchers or senior level physicians. But uh, after days, people were not accepting the fact that a female, uh, who just finished medical school wanted to pursue another level of school and also another level of uh, specialty and after that also she wanted to pursue subspecialty and she was telling us how the society her parents and everyone in her neighborhood was telling her that was a very wrong decision because uh, she would have no one to marry her if she has pursued that much in her education these days i think people are understanding more that women are capable and women can be both uh, wives and mothers and um also higher level physicians. So I think that's something that has gotten better since then. Lily, you're making me think of my own mother. My own mother went uh, to see the counselor because she wanted to be a physician, but she already had a wedding ring on. And the counselor mm -hmm. told her, oh, I see you have a wedding ring on. Don't you want to have children? And she said, yes. And they said, oh, then you shouldn't go into medicine. Anyway, you won't be surprised that from the moment I was born, my mother said, I shouldn't have listened to that person. And my daughter is going to be a doctor. And my mother had three daughters and all three of us didn't have a choice. We had to become doctors. And now here in Canada, about 70% of the medical school class is made up of women. So uh, oh, maybe we're a little bit ahead of where you are, but certainly I hope that that gives you hope. And yes, I have four children. I'm a doctor and I hold a leadership position in a research funding organization. So for anyone listening to this, uh, never say never. That makes me so hopeful about the future here. I'm Claire Wenham. I'm an assistant professor of global health policy at the LSE. Many women during this pandemic have had their maternity care changed, altered or cancelled. For example, here in the UK, we've seen uh, telemedicine move in place of actually having one-to-one -one midwife appointments. We've seen changes to being able to have birth partners with you during labour, for example. And this has all affected the quality of care that women are receiving during, an, during the pandemic. And this isn't just unique to the UK, this is a universal truism that actually women have had, uh, have had their maternity care compromised as a consequence of the focus of getting COVID under control and having to shift all resources and, and hospital resources, clinical resources, human resources into managing patients with COVID. 
This isn't a new thing during the COVID-19 pandemic. We have seen similar trends during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, the Ebola outbreak in DRC in 2019, and uh, in during Zika in Brazil in 2016. And so this has resulted in much reduction if, of care or of quality care in many parts of the world. And some of the initial modelling that we've seen out of this, not that we have done, but that others have done, have shown that there will be significant effects on maternal mortality, on neonatal mortality, on stillbirths uh, at a global level. And obviously this varies by, by different countries and different health systems. But we think this is something that we really need to focus on because, uh, you know, having a baby is part, a routine part of life. And we need to make sure that these services are ring-fenced during times of health crises. When we think about pandemic preparedness, we need to stop thinking about pandemic preparedness purely as epidemiological control of the disease and stop creating policies which simply plan for disease control of that one pathogen. But they need to be much more holistic. And as part of this, they need to make sure that there is provision and ring-fencing of maternity health services, of sexual reproductive health services, and making sure that this is continued uh, to make sure that the, that the impact of the pandemic or the epidemic doesn't distort the health system to such an extent that we see what occurred during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, which was more or as many, if not more women, died of maternal maternity-related complications than died of the pathogen itself because of the impact of the distortion of the, you know, of the of the epidemic. And so how can we ensure that provision continues and that women feel safe to doing it, to, to, to using these services during health crisis periods and making sure this is embedded within policy? So I want to, to come back to this pandemic and talk about what you think has uh, sort of highlighted about uh, you know why we should be prioritizing women's health and gender issues how has this pandemic uh, shown the world that i think it's shown the world in many ways i mean 70 percent of healthcare workers are women um i worked in the very first outbreak in long-term care here in quebec canada when we didn't have enough PPE and most of my colleagues had gotten COVID because they were exposed. So it was me, one physician for 70 patients and uh, I didn't have a mask that fit. There were two types of masks at the time, uh, never mind the N95s, for sure we didn't have those, but there was, you know, the blue surgical mask and the yellow surgical mask and the yellow one was just a little bit better. I was able to pinch it over my nose and it wouldn't fall off my face, but they were only handing out the blue ones and I had to sneak around and try to get the yellow ones and my poor Asian colleagues, both of these masks fell off their poor faces because PPE wasn't designed for women. And of course they had run out of all the small and medium sized gloves because it was mostly women and we had small hands. So, um, you know, I, I don't think that pandemic preparedness was designed for women. I don't think it was designed for healthcare workers who are women, not only physicians, but most importantly, the care aides and the nurses and the support system of women. That's one way in which I think it affected it. 
uh, you know, women who are caregivers for their children and the children had to stay home. My colleagues would be exposed and then go home and, and give it to their family because they were essential healthcare workers. And that caused a lot of tragedy and pain. The other thing that's really struck me and where I want to put some effort right now is in the regulatory system. It's been a miracle that we've been able to develop these vaccines so quickly. But what really struck me is that women are mostly having the side effects from the vaccine. I mean, with the mRNA vaccine, about 90% of reported side effects are in women. Uh, the first uh, 10, you know, anaphylactic reactions were reported only in women, severe allergic reactions. When we look at the AstraZeneca vaccine and the blood clots, here we're seeing it more commonly in middle-aged women. Um, so you have to ask yourself, did the regulatory agencies and the industry sponsors, did they actually do an analysis? Did they look? Uh, did they disaggregate the data and see if women would have more side effects? How did we not know this? I mean, in advance, why didn't anyone look? Why didn't why didn't they approve it? Maybe even, I don't know, at half the dose for women. We know that women mount twice the antibody response, which is probably why mortality is more severe in men, um, because women do mount more of an immune response, both to the virus and the vaccine to protect themselves. But Maybe women only need half the dose of the vaccine. Maybe we could be protected and not have all the side effects. Uh, why aren't people asking these questions? Shouldn't government regulatory agencies that approve these vaccines look at it through a sex and gender lens? So these are things that have really jumped out at me from my perspective here in Canada. But Lulit, I imagine your experience has been very different. Uh, with the COVID-19, most schools were closed and most children were staying home. And with that, they had more exposure and more time to spend with the, with the men in the households and with, uh, especially with their fathers and uncles. So with that, there were an increased number of uh, rape cases and an increased number of uh, violence that were reported just because of that. And that made me wonder that we were, we've been working to... Uh, again, to prevent gender-based violence and to prevent to prevent rapes and to prevent children that um, get violated with, from you know a recent uh, family member. But we have uh, that made me realize that we haven't working in we haven't been working enough and we haven't been uh, creating awareness or we have been we haven't been solving the root causes. But we were just working to to you know to give them a a painkiller or something like that just to to alleviate the surface uh, numbers and not uh, cure them from the actual disease. And so that made me wonder that we actually fail those students and those children because we're not preventing them from uh, the violence that they experience. And the only reason that they are safe from their parents is because they spend their days at school. And with the COVID-19, again, there was an increased number of pregnancies reported because most women and were not able to get their contraceptive um, shots or they were not able to get any care at uh, at the health centers because, you know, we were not prepared for that. We were not prepared to prevent the pandemic while uh, continuing the the provision of uh, these services to women so that made me realize we still have a lot to do and we do not we're not prepared at all for the pandemic and i mean this pandemic wasn't expected and you know we haven't been prepared of course but there should be a certain level of preparedness to, to assure women cells when this type of situations come in like not um not to have many women who get pregnant when a 
just because of a pandemic. So let me ask you both, looking forward, what would you change? What do you think needs to be prioritized? How, what needs to change so that we, uh, we are not in this, these situations that we're describing in, in two different settings, actually, uh, in your experiences? So let's start with you. Okay, Yuna. so I think uh, the first thing to do is uh, there, there have been many research regarding women's souls. I'm going to give acknowledgement for that. But this research should be, I think, the next... Uh, a uh, generation of researchers should be women, especially when it comes to issues regarding women's health, because they are at a better position to understand this, the issues and to uh, provide with a solution. So we have to empower more women to become researchers, leaders, and physicians, because I think they understand women's health more than any other people. There are, there one is, uh, like I said, we, I don't think we're addressing the root causes of several women's health problems. So more research should be done to focus on these root causes rather than those on just addressing those uh, problems on the surface or on the on the tip because uh, if we actually solve the root problems it wouldn't be a problem if a child stays uh, home and has a spends more time with a male family member because these root causes are the ones that we're not working on and um, i think that's because of uh, a major lack of research that to understand where these problems come from. So I think that's, those are the two things that we should prioritize moving forward. Kara, what, what do you think needs to change going forward so that we can change the reality that you experience? Well, I agree completely with Elite. I think that it should be women's health by women for women. And for that to happen, we need more healthcare women in senior decision-making positions. I mean, Lulit, if we had known what was happening with here, we call it intimate uh, partner violence or gender violence, would we have set up shelters? Would we have found ways to tap women to volunteer in those shelters, even though it's themselves that they need help for? What could we have done for that if more women had been in charge? Maybe if women had been in charge of the regulatory agencies, we would have asked the industry sponsors to look at two doses of the vaccine, for instance, and see if we could give a lower dose to women. So I think that understanding health through a woman's lens and having a woman at the table to contribute to decisions about women's health uh, and diverse women's health through an intersectional perspective, especially women with lived experience, is critical for changing where we need to go going forward. And so in terms of, um, you know, education for healthcare providers, I'm hopeful that there'll be more women teaching. Lilith, hopefully your, your daughter, when she goes to medical school, uh, will have many more um, teachers who are women. Um, what we're teaching here in Canada is a six-step cognitive approach to, uh, you know, patient treatment. And the first question that you need to ask yourself is, what is this patient's sex and gender? So, you know, what sex were they assigned at birth and how do they currently self-identify? And that's to make sure that we include gender diverse and transgender women. Then the next question is, is there sex or gender bias in the presentation of the symptom or the condition that they have. So we talked a little bit about heart disease. A woman may not have crushing chest pain, but may still have a heart attack um, or symptoms of heart disease. Then third, 
is there an issue with our diagnostic testing? And, you know, I think again of the heart and the fact that, you know, women's heart rhythms are slightly different. They're more susceptible to what we call long QT syndrome because, you know, they, they have their hearts re-electrolyze, if you will, at a slower pace than men's. Um, so is there bias in our diagnostic testing? What are we not picking up because all our tests are based on men? And is there bias in our lab values? Should the cutoffs for low blood counts be the same for men and women? Um, right now it's not. We just assume that women should always be anemic because they're always menstruating. But does that make sense? Or should they actually, you know, should we actually make sure that they have the same oxygen carrying capacity as men? And then finally in our treatments, should we be giving a different dose or even a different medication to women for the same condition? There's been fascinating research that has shown, for instance, in pain that in the spinal cord, different cells, T cells in women and microglia in men, are the mediators for transmitting pain from the peripheries to the brain. Well, then maybe we need different treatments for pain that target these different cells. And then finally, how do you get rid of that gender bias in the healthcare system? Um, you know, and what could we be doing to make sure that women have the same outcomes as men? And how do we get away from what some people call bikini medicine, which is the only difference between a woman is and a man is what's under the bikini line? How do we move from bikini medicine to identity management, like Lulit said? How do you treat a woman for her identity, for her diverse experience and background at different stages of her lives? And that, for me, is the dream that I'm aspiring to for women's health around the world. You've been listening to Lulith Jonas Mengesha and Kara Tenenbaum. The additional interviews in this podcast were Lavanya Vijay Singham, Claudia Lopez, and Claire Wenham. This discussion was part of the collection on women's health and gender inequalities and was made in collaboration with the World Health Organization and the UN University. A link to the rest of the collection is in the show notes. We will have two more of these podcasts. Our first is already available and is about how women campaigning for change have improved the health situation for women. But there's still a lot more to do. And our third one, which is soon to be published, is on the role of legislation in changing that inequity. Those will be available on the BMJ podcast, available wherever you get your podcast from. I'm Vismita Gupta-Smith. Thank you for listening.